Welcome to the Labyrinth. I'm your host, Pratham Padav. My guest today is Gregory D.L. He is an author and a personal development mentor who spreads the ideals of free market capitalism and self-empowerment in post-communist countries like Ukraine, Georgia, and Armenia. Although he is an American author, he is currently living in a rural village in Armenia. If you find this podcast useful, do like, share, subscribe, and hit the bell icon, leave a comment below, and you can also join the Labyrinth community. So without further delay, let's begin. Gregory, welcome to the Labyrinth. Hi, thanks for having me on here. So, yeah, so you're an American who's uh, currently living in rural Armenia. Why did you move from the yeah. U.S. to Armenia? I, I, it's funny, I get asked that here all the time, as though Armenians cannot imagine why somebody would leave the famous land of Hollywood, California, where near where I'm from, San Diego, to come to, to this country that no one's ever even heard of, except when they're talking about the Kardashians or something. Um, and uh, it, it started as just exploration because my grandmother was Armenian, one of them. So I have some family roots here. And also I was an avid traveler for many years. I just wanted to see as many different parts of the country as I could. But after I was able to get citizenship here through family descent, I realized I actually just enjoyed spending a lot of time here. And so three years ago, I made the decision to buy a house in a rural community because I really wanted to retire and get away from people. And this just seemed like the best place to do that. And in doing that, I had a lot of experiences that led to the creation of this book about what's wrong with the way that post-Soviet countries like Armenia think about entrepreneurship in, in ways that would be so obvious to Westerners and Americans, but are, are just universal fallacies here that nobody seems to understand because it has not been part of their cultural upbringing because they are still recovering from communism that just ended 30 years ago. Hmm. Can you uh, give examples of these fallacies? Yeah. Um, so a lot of it comes, some of it is intellectual and some of it is emotional, which mm -hmm. is uh, especially interesting to me because since I've traveled to a lot of different places, uh, you, you get a flavor for the way people think in different places. In a lot of places, they're really uneducated, which might seem like an obvious reason why they, why they might be poor because they're just not educated very well. So they don't know how to do a lot of things that they would be able to employ to increase their standard of living. And Armenia is a really weird place in that people here generally seem pretty intelligent and skilled. Like, like it's not a nation full of idiots, as far as I can tell, yet they seem so unconfident about using their intelligence and skills to produce wealth in, in any number of ways. And, and it really does feel like I'm living in a nation full of people with PTSD. Uh, economic PTSD, like they, they are so unconfident in their ability to like make uh, managerial decisions for themselves and say, well, okay, if I buy these tools and I can employ my skill as a carpenter, I can start producing an income for myself. And like, they just, they just need someone to tell them what to do. They absolutely, most of them will not think this way whatsoever. And, and it's sad. It's taken me the three years I've been here to, to to beg and plead and lecture and, and try to teach and demonstrate some of the, my neighbors, some of the people I work with, some of my friends 
uh, that you don't have to think and act this way. You can make these choices yourself. What what is it about somebody being in a position of government authority, for example, that makes them better qualified to make these decisions than you? It's your money. It's your time. It's your effort. You're the one who's going to experience the positive effects of success or the negative effects of failure. So you have got to be the one making these choices and thinking strategically about how you're going to live your life. It's like a whole mind-blowing concept for them here. Okay. How is your life in Armenia? Um. It's got its frustrations, which I, I detail quite a bit in the book. Uh, but, you know, no place is perfect. And I've been enough places to know that. I know that in any place you go, there are going to be things you don't like, that uh, recurring frustrations and problems you have to deal with. Uh, so you you when you have the choice to live almost anywhere, you prioritize what is most important to me. And for me, that was things like, uh, do do I have... A sense of control over my time in my life. Uh, being out in a rural area here does give me a great sense of freedom and control. There's minim minimal government intervention, which someone like me obviously values a lot. Um, and and I feel like this is a place where I can be part of of the economy and and the community and and contribute in a positive way to the to the development of the community that I'm in, in Armenia as a whole or, or the local village culture. That's not always the case in many places. I, I have a small house in Ecuador, too, which is a place I've spent a lot of time. Great place, great weather, lovely, friendly people, very cheap to live. But I will never be seen as a part of the Ecuadorian culture because I have a different color skin than them. And even if I speak Spanish pretty well, they will always see me as an American and they will treat me differently, either either in a casual kind of way or, or in a serious criminal kind of way, like it might make me the target for being mugged or my house broken into or something that's and that there's nothing i can do to change that that's just the state of things there here that's much less of an issue partially because i have the armenian grandmother and just in general there's a lot more similarities between the way we look and act okay so have you successfully assimilated with the local population i don't know if assimilation is is the right term um but i i am, am in a mutually beneficial arrangement <laughs> with the people here. They, they now know me. Uh, more or less, they appreciate the unique strengths and perspective that I bring. I, I do a lot of things like I, I volunteer to teach English and music lessons to a lot of the children here in the village or, or in town. I do a few things like that. I'm starting to teach at the uh, university in Yerevan, of course, based on the book. On, on Yes, I just wrote them an email saying, hey, I've written a whole book about what's wrong with the way your country thinks about economics. And I know you're teaching economics classes. Maybe I can help with that. And they, they actually had a really positive positive response to that. So I'm doing what I can. And so it, the point is, yes, there does seem to be a place for someone like me here. Okay. Uh, did you move to Armenia because uh, also because there are a few things that you dislike about the US? Oh, there are many things I dislike about the US. Yeah, that's why I started traveling in the first place. I, I've been traveling since I was 18, roughly. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I wanted to see how the rest of the world worked, and there is no reliable way to to know these things unless you experience it yourself. Because most people who talk about the world but have never been outside their home country just don't know what they're talking about, but they will act like they do. So it's the kind of thing where uh, after you have enough experience and enough confidence to start trusting your own assessment of things, you really question the false confidence that other people have on subjects they know almost nothing about. It's like waking up from the matrix in a lot of ways. Okay. Uh, you're sort of an advocate for uh, free market capitalism. 
and uh, you can say that yeah yeah and uh, the united states is sort of a beacon for capitalism <laughs> so why would you leave the very place that has championed capitalism so a uh, great question and um one it's it's not a perfect capitalist system the us mm-hmm. which yes. is funny because even that word now has so many different interpretations and and people on both sides of the argument who either love it or hate it might be talking about completely different things when they say capitalism and that's because the poster child for capitalism which is by and large the US and other western countries isn't really displaying a perfect mm-hmm. example of capitalism it's capitalism mixed with a lot of other things that the true capitalists would also disapprove of right and so that's what that's why we miscommunicate when we argue because well in capitalism you know poor people starve to death and nobody can afford housing and and whatever uh well a lot of that that you're directly complaining about is not a feature of capitalism it's a feature of the other things that has have polluted capitalism mm-hmm. right yeah. <laughs> because competition drives prices down so there must be some other force that is preventing that from happening and that part is not part of capitalism i don't even use that term anymore in the 300 pages of the book i intentionally never use the word capitalism i use capital many times um but i never say capitalism because i know how subject to misinterpretation that word is so i will use things like uh, you know the uninhibited free market non-interventionism non-bureaucratism economic conditions that favor entrepreneurs because all of these are much better descriptions of what i'm talking about whereas just the blanket term capitalism might mean very different things depending on the reader's biases and and pre-existing opinions so what like why even use a term that's that's just going to miscommunicate what i'm trying to talk about uh, so I, I you know I talk about the optimization of choice which is what mm. capitalism is it's no outside party violently interfering with how you choose to spend your money or sell things for money how you choose to produce value and I talk about that as it, the that being the best choice as specific for everyone of course but specifically especially for countries that are trying to rise up out of third world poor status what we might call second world countries countries that aren't quite destitute anymore people aren't exactly starving to death in the street but and and have started to establish a comfortable standard of living for themselves but have not yet fully embraced all the opportunities that exist to them in the modern world okay, i would call those second world countries i think armenia is a great example of that as are probably most or all post soviet countries right yeah and and so i uh, so yes everybody could benefit from the free market and entrepreneurship <laughs> but specifically countries in this situation where they are ready to rapidly improve the way they do things and change their mindset especially the younger generations that didn't directly experience communism but are still being held back by the opinions of their parents and grandparents um i like being in a place like that because as i was kind of alluding to before it's the kind of place where i feel like i might actually stand a chance at having a significant positive impact who in california is going to listen to me lecture about how great capitalism is they all have their own biases and their own, own opinions and they all already think they know what they're talking about whereas a place like here they're much more likely to realize oh the way things we were doing before wasn't really working and we're all just kind of learning as we go along now especially the young people 
they're much more likely to listen to someone like me when I say, here's what's wrong with the way your culture views business and entrepreneurship and producing value and spending money. They'll listen and say, yeah, you're right. It is crazy that I see my parents doing stuff like that. And I don't know why they do that and why they're sure that that's the right way to do it. This guy makes a lot of sense. And he has an outsider's opinions, which makes him maybe less biased and, and can more clearly see the things that we could improve on. That's the goal for me to help people improve. That makes sense. And it's also smart of you to not use the word capitalism. <laughs> you, you are an advocate for capitalism, but capitalism has become such a misconstrued. It's become a bad word in a way because not, not that capitalism is bad, but the peop, the critiques of capitalism have intentionally uh, misguided people with mm -hmm. regards to capitalism and they've explained it in a wrong way. For, uh, well, I, I don't even know if it's intentional on their part. I think they are just as con confused, right? And that, that's why their arguments are so confused. So they don't have working precise definitions for what they're talking about. They just have kind of this vague blanket image of what they think capitalism is and anything that roughly corresponds to that image, they say, oh, that's what I'm fighting against, right? Mm -hmm. Like renting an apartment shouldn't cost that much money. Poor people should have more access to affordable health care but it's income capitalism inequality yeah. The, yeah income inequality you don't even know what these things mean you don't know the causes of them you just know you don't like them so therefore anything you don't like falls under the umbrella term capitalism they, they're not they're not talking about a science they're talking about an ideology right they're just describing something i don't like and everything loosely related to it yeah not only are you from the US, you are from one of the most polarized state in the US, <laughs> California. And, yeah. uh, you know, in the past two years, the past many years, uh, when you turn on the news about California, all you can hear is riots, Black Lives Matter riots. And in the past week, you see the Roe versus Wade uh, riots because they've decentralized mm -hmm. abortions to, back to the states. Uh, how how was your life living in California and what do you think about California culture? Well, I left California about 15 years ago. I've been back a few times since then for short periods of time. I will start by saying the positive things about California. It's a very open-minded place. Like, you know, it's it's the kind of place where you can wear anything, you can date whoever you want, you can arrange your life in almost any way you want that might seem culturally forbidden in any other part of the world or it's just strange and no one would talk to you and in california it's hey that guy's just doing his thing you know <laughs> and it's much more accepted there that kind of thing i really appreciate especially now that i've had more perspective of, of more let's just say restricted parts of the world where, where there's far less either legal or cultural choice about how you choose to live your life there's far more judgment and restriction so i i definitely appreciate that aspect of california more just how much more open-minded people are but all the other stuff you mentioned uh, seems to have gotten a lot worse since I left and will probably only get worse as time goes on. Um, people are very emotional in California and not they don't think too hard about their intellectual positions. They, they become very ideological and, and they become very vocal and violent about the ideolo ideology they've chosen to endorse and, and try to enforce through legal means most of the time. And so, you know, the Californian way of solving problems is, is to block streets and riot and protest and, and shun and condemn people for not conforming to how you think uh, the law should be 
arranged or how a business should be run, which is kind of funny because it's like the opposite of what I was just saying about lifestyle freedom, where they'll be very open-minded about your personal choices and the way you live your life. But if your business is run in a way they don't approve of, you know, they'll, they'll burn you down either literally or metaphorically. Um, so it's, it's a mess. It's a mess of a place, in my opinion. It was a lot, it was a bit better 15 years ago when I was there. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's going to burn itself down. It's, it's a mess that's self-destructing, imploding as time goes on. And I, I think there's a reason that there's been sort of a mass exodus away from California. More and more people are leaving. And I still have no idea why it is one of the most expensive places in the world to live, because I don't know what you're getting for that <laughs> crazy high cost of living that people pay there now. Yeah. Okay. T uh, tell me a little bit about your uh, new book. Everyone is an entrepreneur selling economic self-determination in a post-Soviet world. Yeah. Well, that's that's um, what I've been talking about, trying to explain in a formal, you know, very direct, almost scientific kind of way, the effects of, of the way people live here and, and their communist past that prevents them from saying what should be obvious truths to them because as i said they're generally quite intelligent people and i've already had the book translated into armenian and given copies to my armenian neighbors here the ones who don't speak english and it, as they read it including the stories that feature them because i tell many stories like isn't it crazy that these people like uh, you know don't buy their own tools for example when they when they have decades of experience working with these tools you know um and, and as they read it, you know, they'll say things like, well, yeah, I, I mean, I already understand these economic principles that you're explaining because they're kind of obvious. You know, it's it's like um, even if no one had ever formally explained the laws of physics to you, you'd still have a pretty intuitive sense of how gravity and, and momentum and thermodynamics work. Right. You don't need to memorize Newton's laws and the, the equations that go with them to to understand things fall down and, and hot things transfer their heat to cold things and balls in motion remain in motion until something stops, you know, stuff like that, that. That's pretty basic and intuitive to anyone who's lived for any amount of time. So they'll say, like, yeah, we understand these things. I'm like, okay, if you understand them, why don't you conform your actions to them? If you understand that this is the way to produce value, to apply leverage through through tools and relationships with people to, to grow more value and to exchange that value for money, currency that we use as a medium of exchange, why are you still living at the level that you're living at? Why haven't you employed these principles more? And a lot of it is that emotional thing I was talking about, that they feel afraid because for generations you were sent to a gulag or killed if you dared to think entrepreneurially at all, if you tried to make your own choices about how you were going to feed your starving family or, or acquire clothing for them to wear, because it, literally all these kinds of choices were made for you by the state for your own good, so to speak, right? Because the prevailing ideology was that the state has to make these choices for everyone in the best interest of everyone. And if you don't go along with that and you try to act outside the system, it means you are hurting the system. You are hurting your neighbors for your own betterment. That was okay. the cultural dogma that almost mm -hmm. everybody believed. And if they, tr if they went against it at all, they faced severe consequences. And that's the conclusion I ultimately reach in the book that it's not just about educating people. Here's how economics works, the hard science of economics, which obviously even Westerners could still gain a lot from because there's a lot of shit that we <laughs> ignore routinely. But a lot of it is giving them the emotional conviction and confidence to say, now make your own choices. Now that you know how this works, start making your own choices and improving your life in the way you think is best. Okay. Uh... 
so how how can these people how, how can they build a good uh, business or a brand you i know that you were also written a book on branding so mm-hmm. for a person who's living in a post communist country how, how can you provide them with the confidence to build a good business or to build a good brand so um branding is actually the last thing i cover in the book which is funny because i wrote another book called brand identity breakthrough which has also been translated into armenian and published here and in a way i i end this book where my previous book began this is almost like a prequel to that book where mm-hmm. a brand is the result of understanding um how to produce and systematize value and and build mutually prof- profitable division of labor relationships with other people who can do the things you can't and everything in the book comes back to understanding what your knowledge and your skills are and how to leverage your knowledge and skills through technology tools to produce specific kinds of value and until you are confident enough to do that you can't people here especially but anywhere try to start from the end and say well uh this sounds like a cool brand name this count sounds like a cool slogan what about a business that did something like this and they they're just sort of picking ideas out of the air cuz they sound neat and yeah maybe they would be successful maybe people would like a widget that does that thing called this whatever but they they really need to be it's it's almost like start with why start with who you are what you care about what you're objectively good at and interested in and and then how do you apply those things through technology to produce better kinds of value than what already exists on the market when you can answer that then you can say well okay what should we call this thing and what what other kinds of products and services should we bring under the same umbrella concept and hey what color should our logo be i don't know but that that all comes after you've you've solved those fundamental problems first which is the work most people aren't willing to do yeah you know ironically i believe that communists are very good in branding when you think of communism you think of the you know the hammer and the sickle you think of mm-hmm. the red and yellow flag you think of stalin uh posing next to a little yeah. girl you think of the che guevara t-shirt mm-hmm. it's so ironic that communists are have been extremely successful in branding something so evil and tyrannical as mm-hmm. uh something that is positive and helpful to people yeah because the the laws of branding are part of their their consequence of human psychology the way that we group concepts together and and if over time start to you know relate the way a, a symbol or a color scheme makes us feel to to a certain set of ideas that we're supposed to believe in it and associate with that thing right so that applies whether it's a positive or a negative thing you see the nazi swastika it means something to us now at the point in history we're in now but to a german in the 1940s it meant something very different right it was a source of national pride probably i don't know i wasn't there but it had to have been for nazism to have been as successful as it was right yeah. and and so that understanding branding is really just understanding how do i want people to think about me and the ideas and and the values that i produce through products and services and the, the things i stand for how do i want them to associate those things with me what what symbols and colors will help me do that mm-hmm. and so if you don't understand those things there's always going to be some asshole like a hitler or a stalin or a lenin who is going to understand those things and is going to use them to manipulate people and change the way they think to to what they want it to be which is like a form of interventionism itself intervening with the way people think about things and make choices it's ideological brainwashing 
And, and that's the exact opposite of what I'm all about, which is about educating people about how things work and then letting them make their own choices based on that education. Okay. Uh, how long do you think it might take for uh, Eastern Europeans or post-communist states to adapt to a more uh, capitalist society? It's going to take generations. Okay. <laughs> realistically. I mean, there's no getting around that because, um, as I said, even people who didn't grow up in communism, which is anyone under 30 now, because it ended in 1991, 31 years ago, um, they still need their parents' permission to think a certain way or to act a certain way. And that, that's a weird part of the culture here that I never quite understood because I was never like that in California. I, I got away from my parents as quickly as I could because I saw that they were restricting me and holding me back and stopping me from being the kind of person I wanted to be. I don't know who told me to act that way, but somehow I always had that idea from a very young age. And that almost seemingly does not exist here because I know people my age here in their 30s who still treat their parents like, like I need mommy and daddy's permission to do anything unorthodox. If I'm going to go away for a week and I have to tell them where I'm going and get their permission. And if I'm going to quit my job because I see a better career prospect somewhere else or want to start my own business, mommy and daddy have to have to approve because, you know, they're such strategic geniuses in, in business, I'm sure. They're the, they're the ones who are most qualified to make that decision for you, right? And it's, again, it's just a weird authoritarian reverence that I don't understand and that is not helping the young people here. I'm not saying hate your parents. I'm saying if you're going to respect your parents, respect them for the right reasons. Respect them because you've built real relationships with them and they genuinely care about you or they genuinely have some kind of experience and expertise that you could learn from. But never just because, well, they're my parents. I have to do what they say. That's just yeah. another form of dogma and bureaucratism. <laughs> you know, that kind of culture is extremely strong here in India, where I do. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's far worse. People here are expected to worship their parents. Even after you're married, even things like, uh, you know, if a couple wants to have kids, they usually have to go and, you know, take their parents, not their permission, but sort of their blessings. Yeah, parents control our lives here in India. I, I'm dating a girl here mm. who I have great chemistry with. We get along really well. She really likes a lot of things about the way I think and the way I act. And I, and I really like a lot of things about her. And, and I keep trying to push the relationship to the next logical step. Like, hey, let's spend more time together alone. Spend a weekend at my house. Let's, let's go do more things. And she clearly wants to. But even in her mid-20s, she still asked it. Well, I haven't told my parents about you yet. I don't know what they'll think of you. I don't know if they'll think this is okay. And I keep saying, is the reason you have to tell your parents first just because you genuinely love and respect them so much that, and you think they would have such valuable advice to give you about you, the possibility of you dating me? Or is it because you are terrified to do anything that they have not approved of, including okay. aspects of, of your private romantic life? Like, and she doesn't have answers to these questions because no one has ever asked her these things before. I feel like she's in a prison and I'm slowly trying to break her out of that prison. Like my little ice pick that's chipping away at the walls or something. I don't know if it's going to be successful or not, but that's the kind of thing I'm dealing with here on a daily basis. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, uh, because people in Eastern Europe and also here in Asia are heavily influenced by culture and religion. We are far more religious than people in the West. And as a result, 
we tend to take things more slowly we are far more conservative if we have to take a relationship to the next level we are far more cautious because that's sort of ingrained in our culture yeah and what what can you do when 99% of the people around you are all under this strange spell that clearly makes no sense at all to you right that that is insane but 99% of people believe it you know what what can you do except just try to wake up individual people and say you don't have to think that way you can make your own choices you, there's no physical law restricting you to act this way it's just this idea that you've grown up with that you never learned to get rid of okay yeah uh, so would you say that uh, that places like armenia also has to become more progressive in a way if if by progressive you mean making progress towards freedom and independence and and an abundance of choices and and wealth production yes if that's what you mean by progressive i know that term now has some political connotations that are quite loaded up so that's unfortunate that we have to even in talking about these things i have to specify exactly <laughs> what i mean when i use certain terms because otherwise people are going to misinterpret what i mean you know uh, yes i think we need to make progress towards freedom and wealth production <laughs> the optimization of choice in abundance that's what i'm trying to make progress towards but that's mm. even how i define wealth in the book wealth is having an abundance of opportunities and options for solving problems or getting what you want in life money is one aspect of that the more money you have the more stuff you can buy but that's not wealth what wealth is in principle wealth is opportunities to pursue what you subjectively value okay you know this example that you just gave about this girl that you're dating in uh, her mid 20s or uh, people uh, generally in countries like armenia or even here in india we think a lot about what our parents would think about us what society would think about us and that reminds me of your uh, tedx talk that you gave who mm. are we when the world uh, stops telling us who to be <laughs> uh mm -hmm. who are we <laughs> seriously yeah um yeah so you can see there's a, there's some consistency in the things i talk about uh that talk was given about 3 years ago at at the university here the same one i'm now teaching courses about economics on and it was based on one of my previous books called travel as transformation conquer the limits of culture to discover your own identity and which was really just about a series of observations i had about myself that as i traveled the world for more than 10 years starting at age 18 uh, i i had a lot of awakenings about what i assumed were like invaluable truths about myself but were really just consequences of the place i happened to grow up in southern california the first 18 years of my life and in experiencing so many different cultures it, it not only do you gain a perspective on the many different ways that people can live around the world but you gain a perspective on yourself well do i really believe these things do i really care about these things what are the things might i believe and care about who might i become if i gave myself complete freedom to do that and let go of all my cultural baggage of the past that confined me to just being a certain kind of person that's what i mean by conquering the limits of culture to discover who you really are and in doing that you find also that yeah some of the things uh that you learned while living in the place that you happen to be from may actually be authentic parts of yourself that you were able to discover but now you see them applied in so many different contexts you know am i just interested in in painting 
because I took a painting class in my high school in California. How many other ways might I explore that interest? What else might I do with it beyond just the way I was taught to paint or what a painter is as an arbitrary example? Okay. Uh, do you think there are advantages to living in a religious conservative society? Are there advantages to it? I mean, are there advantages to religion in general? Probably. I mean, we've had religion for as long as we've had human history. So there must be a reason why. There must be a cultural role that it's playing. But I think it is very, very easy for this tool of, let's call it a community building tool and a philosophical tool. I think it's very easy for this tool to become a prison, to become a burden when it starts dictating what we must do and how we must act, instead of encouraging us to explore the, the fundamental philosophical nature of reality, right? Like, is there a God? How does he want us to act? Those are cool questions to ask. I think that's the most useful thing that religion does for us, as in addition to giving us a community of people who are also asking and answering, trying to answer those questions. But it very easily becomes oppressive when we start saying, okay, my children must act this way. My neighbors must all ask act this way because this is how I've chosen to answer this question. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it just becomes tyranny. It becomes another form of bureaucratism, which throughout the book I say is the direct opposite of entrepreneurship because bureaucratism solves problems through force and violence rather than innovating solutions and encouraging people to adopt them because they work better. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. As a personal development mentor, what kind of advice would you give to young people who want to improve themselves? The most important advice I could give to anyone, whether they're here in Armenia, there in India, or back at my home in California or anywhere else, uh, is that to understand yourself first, mm -hmm. which you can only do by first ignoring what everyone has told you you are supposed to be, either in an explicit way with words or, or in that unspoken and cultural kind of way where everything is just subtly influencing you. And when you know who you really are, it becomes a lot easier to uh, adopt the entrepreneurial paradigm of life where you start to try to take more and more control of your life and make choices that help you to the maximum possible extent, which usually means applying your knowledge and skills to produce wealth of some kind, value of some kind, which is what gives you the leverage to become wealthier, which may mean a being a millionaire or it may mean something completely different. It may just mean the freedom to buy a house in a rural Armenian village and fill it full of cats and teach music classes to children on weekends and, and write books from home. That's what I'm spending most of my time doing. You know, To me, mm -hmm. that's wealth because I have the freedom to make those choices right? Mm -hmm. That's the outcome that I think everybody would pursue if they gave themselves total emotional freedom to make those kinds of choices. It won't look the same for them. It won't be a rural Armenian house for everyone. But the point is to have the freedom to pursue what you want according to the strategy that makes the most sense for what you want. You have to remove those psychological barriers first, which is what entrepreneurship is all about. Would you ever consider moving back to the U.S.? The U.S. is a big, diverse place, um, so I, I can't say categorically, no, it's all worthless. I don't think I would ever move back to California. I might visit just for you know nostalgia's sake or to see how it's evolved in the last 20 years, just because it's interesting. Um, but I, I wouldn't be opposed to finding you know somewhere 
rural and, and quiet and peaceful, maybe in one of those flyover states that nobody ever talks about in the media and, and settling down maybe in a way similar to how I've done here or, or what I tried to do in Ecuador. Um, so yeah, it, it's not out of the question completely, but at the moment, I, I just don't see any reason to be in the US. Yeah. So I guess when I have you back on the if I have you back on the podcast next time, you would probably be in Nebraska or some <laughs> rural. It's, it's possible, but there'd have to be some strong reason for me to, even to leave here. There'd have to be a strong reason for me to, because I have mm. found comfort and freedom here. There's yeah. no reason for me to leave. Just, well, I should try something different now. Why? No, give me mm. a reason to, then I'll consider it. Yeah. Makes sense. So you've also written a book called uh, The Influential Author, which is a book on how to write, publish, and market your book. And you've written many books as well. Uh, how easy or difficult is it to get your book published nowadays? Well, the whole point of The Influential Author was to show that you don't need to go through a traditional publisher anymore, and you can still be relatively successful. Uh, even as a nonfiction author, which I'm told is actually much harder than being a fiction author. Like if you're going to write a romance book, I, I guess those are really popular. Lots of people read those. But I've always been a nonfiction author. And more than that, I write about like really deep, sometimes esoteric subjects that aren't necessarily going to have mass audience appeal. And that's why the subtitle of the book is How to Write, Publish, and Sell Nonfiction Books That Matter, to show that this is about going beyond just writing whatever happens to be popular on Kindle that month and, and hoping to you know just get a flood of, of buyers for that. And so I, I've written and published five of my own books. The, uh, the Everyone is an Entrepreneur is the latest one. And I've also worked on many other nonfiction books for other authors, people who write things like memoirs or, or how-to books, um, philosophical books. I, I worked with a very famous neurosurgeon who wrote his memoirs from his entire career, working on people with all kinds of strange neurological conditions, um, stuff like that. Um, that's what the whole point of the book is. If, if you have something to say and you uh, can figure out how to write and edit and prepare a book for publication, you can be a professional author and make a decent amount of money doing it too. Okay, so uh, how do you self-publish a book? And uh, are there some disadvantages in self-publishing? Because let's say you get your book uh, published through traditional avenues. Uh, if you're really lucky, if someone's really lucky, you may get uh, a contract with one of the big companies like Penguin mm -hmm. or HarperCollins. That's the dream, right, of every writer. Uh, but if you get your book published by yourself uh, through Amazon or through some other avenues, Will you be able to sell a lot of copies? That depends on many things, some of which are in, in your control and some of which are outside your control. The, the appeal that's supposed to exist for going through a traditional publisher, if you're even lucky enough to get an offer from a traditional publisher, is you are getting a smaller piece of potentially a much larger pie. You know, you're, you're earning a tiny little fraction of royalties, but potentially they could sell millions of copies if, if they put the work into really promoting your book, which they're not necessarily going to do. Uh, unfortunately, that's not a guaranteed thing. Uh, it tends to happen with very specific authors and very specific books that have been written that the publisher feels is a guaranteed win because they're not going to invest many thousands of dollars into promoting a book unless they really feel like it's going to turn profit. So if you're already somewhat famous for some reason, if you're writing a book that is just super, super 
hot right now that everybody's waiting to read, um, then it's much more likely that you're going to get an offer from a publisher because those are the books they feel very confident that they can uh, push out onto the market and sell millions of copies with. Um, just because you get an offer for whatever reason doesn't necessarily mean that that's what they're going to do with it. So you may actually be better off self-publishing it where um, I, you're going to face a much harder time promoting it because you don't have the same resources and, and audiences as Random House or something. But if you know even just the basics of internet marketing and how to run things like PPC ads, or if you already have a social media presence for some reason, uh, it might actually be pretty viable for you to turn your existing brand identity and something you already talk about a lot anyway into a book. The hard part there is just understanding what's required for the standards of a professionally published book in terms of editing and proofreading and cover design and formatting and and um, you know just how to make that work on Amazon, which is where um, most people would rather hire someone like me because they don't want to have to figure all that out from scratch. I did because I was very passionate about it and I was highly incentivized to make my book very successful. And so I learned a lot about what books are and what their professional expectations are. And that's why today I can produce pretty, pretty good quality books. I really like the way the cover on this one turned out. Mm. I didn't design the cover because I'm not a designer, but I know how to work with designers to produce something that looks really professional. This is the dust jacket version, which was published through Ingram Spark because Amazon still doesn't offer dust jackets yet. But the point is you hold this, you look at the cover, you, you flip through the pages and uh, it looks and feels like a professionally published book. Mm. And there are so many things that make a book look and feel self-published like if the margins are the wrong size or or the paragraphs have too much space between them or something or, or the headers say something weird that they shouldn't say um there are so many little things like that that if you've been reading professionally published your books your whole life you've come to expect that as, as the standard for how books work and so a self-published author might not know to do all those things and then you pick up a book and you say well this feels cheap for some reason and it may just be that it's not proofread well, like there are spelling and grammar mistakes everywhere, but it may also be all those tiny little formatting things that nobody ever told you about. And so that should be the goal if you're going to take the self-published route. How do I produce a book that really feels like it's at the same level of quality as a professionally published book? That will make it much more likely to be successful. Okay, yeah. so yeah, that does make sense. Uh, so if a guy has to get his uh, book self-published, he has to get a get it proofread, make sure that the formatting and uh, the marketing is done well. Uh, so he has to go through, again, he has to go through a, a small self-publishing firm. He, he can do it all himself if he feels confident taking okay. on all that responsibility. I mean, you're not going to do every step of it. Like I said, I'm not a cover designer and I will never be a cover designer, but like I do all my own editing and proofreading because I know I have the skill set for that. Uh, so whatever you know you're doing, whatever uh, limitations on your time and budget you have, you have to figure out what am I comfortable doing? Do I just want to write the rough draft? Do I want someone to ghostwrite it for me? Do I want to do most of my own editing but have someone else do the proofreading and the formatting? Or you know, figure you figure that out yourself, and then the rest hire someone to do. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Uh, so what are your future plans? Um, I want to produce a lot more educational content. Books are a very good medium like that for someone like me because of the way I communicate long form 
intense explanations of things. You, you've read my work, so you know like mm -hmm. the, yeah. the way I write. Books are a good medium for that, but I don't want to be limited to just books. I'd like to produce more maybe video content on YouTube or something, maybe get more involved in the local universities here, but I don't want to be limited to just that. It's I may have to look into the best way for someone like me to embrace other mediums. But yeah, essentially my life will probably be about to staying at home talking about and writing about the things I care about. I'm okay with that. I think that's a good life for someone like me. Okay. I mean, you've done a lot of things. You traveled to multiple countries. You moved from one country to another country. You've written books. Uh, mm -hmm. So if I may ask, what do you think is the purpose of life? Okay. The purpose of life. Right? Uh, I interpret that question to mean what will experiences will human beings find most meaningful yeah it, yeah okay <laughs> there's not a universal answer to that mm. question because everybody has a different set of values what they find meaningful there will be some similarities probably among large groups of people but it will never be exactly the same for all people mm. and there's a difference between meaning and happiness which i even talk about in everyone as an entrepreneur because they talk about you know every choice we make is in the pursuit of what we value most, which is not the same thing as what makes us happiest. Because even things that make us unhappy or are displeasurable, like things that might cause us physical or emotional pain, we can still choose to do because we find them meaningful for some reason. We can choose to die for someone we love, right? Dying is inherently displeasurable, right? We, we have a strong survival instinct that tells us not to do that under all circumstances, yet we can still choose to do that because we find the action meaningful if that aligns with our values. Like if, if the idea of protecting our, ch our child from death is a meaningful concept to us, we can endure all kinds of displeasure to pursue that meaning. So when people ask a question like, what is the purpose of life? They're saying, usually, is that I don't have a strong sense of meaning in my life and I don't know how to get that. Should I go to church? Should I become a politician? Should I start a business? Should I should I donate to charity? Will that bring meaning to my life? I don't know. Is that what you find meaningful? Are you trying to take someone else's concept of meaning and generalize it and say, well, this must be a universal human way to acquire meaning? This goes back to that self-knowledge thing I was talking about, where the first step in any kind of success business or otherwise, is knowing who you are and what you want. In other words, what you will find most meaningful, where you will get a sense of purpose from in building your life around that thing. Obviously, one of those things for me is education, because so much of what I do is related to education. Books are a medium, an application of that. English lessons to my neighbors are another, you know. But all of it comes back to, to the idea that I find it teaching people useful things meaningful. I find that is the best way I can improve the state of the human race and the world as a whole. What is it for you? I can't tell you, but there must be something. Yeah, there must be something. I haven't figured out yet, but you're right. <laughs> so what, do you, what do you have to do to figure that out? That's the useful question mm -hmm. to ask here. What do I have to do to find out what gives my life a sense of purpose? You have a podcast. Yeah. Why? That requires a fair amount of your time to to maintain and to produce new episodes and to promote right why do you do that what are you getting from it mm. yeah th that's a very good question i, I you know people have asked uh, a similar questions like this as well like what do you want from this podcast 
I don't entirely know, but uh, this podcast has helped me in many ways. Like I wouldn't have known your of your existence if mm-hmm. not for this podcast. I wouldn't have known a lot of people if not for this podcast. In I'm glad that I'm doing this uh, creative endeavor because I get to know a lot about myself the same way you get to know a lot about yourself through writing and through education. So mm-hmm. what I would tell uh, people is to figure out what is that uh, one thing it could be writing it could be podcasting it could be starting your own video content on YouTube but just go for it and uh, don't shy away like some of the people in Armenia as you mentioned who have the tools but uh, they're just mm-hmm. shying away from using it <laughs> yeah it, it's it's this lack of confidence that again people all over the world it's not just a post soviet thing i'm sure you know what i'm talking about i'm sure it shows up in india in its own way in in your life in in its own way uh that i i feel like i need someone's permission or i need someone to instruct me what to do i cannot just independently make that choice based on my own analysis of what seems like the best thing to do i think that's the disease we really need to help people get over who is yeah. more qualified than you to make choices about your life mm. yeah uh, you know now i have to ask another question because of the times that we live in in the mm-hmm. past uh, two years we've seen uh, governments using phrases like you have to give away your individual rights for the greater good you are not qualified to make decisions for yourself and we saw mm. that in the form of uh, lockdowns or uh, you know mandates vaccine mandates or and many other bunch of other things uh, what do you think about uh, these uh, issues um i mean my my political biases should be pretty transparent <laughs> yeah. i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm a strong proponent of individualism freedom uh leaving people alone unless they're hurting you you know uh and most people you know depending on how you phrase that question would also agree that they agree with freedom and they agree with empowering individuals uh to a point you know and that mm-hmm. point will differ for everyone because an argument could be made well if we don't force people to wear masks and get vaccines and stay in their house on lockdown they will be hurting other people right mm-hmm. so therefore we need to defend them preemptively because otherwise all these irresponsible people will be running around spreading diseases and that seems like a reasonable thing in an isolated case if you don't think about it too much except that if that's your standard for what constitutes defending people and when it's justifiable to use force to make people act a certain way you realize you can use that for just about anything mm. that you could always say well if i don't force people to act this way they might do something else that constitutes harm to someone else either directly or indirectly so it becomes a very slippery slope and that's why you have to be hard and firm about when when you say it's okay to interfere with the choices people make in their lives and I, that's why the answer for me is never it is if something is a good idea people should be free to choose that idea if it is a good idea for people to stay in their homes and get vaccines and wear masks the burden should be on you to market mm-hmm. that idea to them to say here's why you should choose to do this because your life will be better and your neighbor's lives will be better and this is in line with your values this is a choice you should be making but the moment you say i will send you to jail or i will shoot you if you don't do what i think is best for you you've become a tyrant whatever yeah. your justification is yeah i completely agree with you and uh, this was a wonderful conversation thank you gregory for coming on the labyrinth thanks for having me it's a great discussion um 
hope people are inspired to check out the book or just to reassess what they think about the best way to pursue their own values is.